The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So, welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Alex Haley, and um, I'm a guest teacher here. You may have noticed I'm not Mark. Uh, he's actually away. Uh, but I'm very delighted to be here, uh, particularly to see so many of you here uh, this morning. So, the reflections that I have for you today are on perfection, possibility, and patience, and that this is a progression. One of the things that I love about um, sharing uh, what's called the Dharma, or the way that things are, is that at any given moment, uh, you're always learning something. So, um, the first part of this reflection is on perfection. And at the beginning, I said that my mom was here, but I failed to say that my stepdad was also here. So I was imperfect in that particular reflection and that acknowledgement. And I love this because as soon as I sat, I went, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) He's also here. And so uh, there's a way in which this is immediate. And that's one of the things that I want to communicate, that we're never perfect. And that we can have this view that somehow this practice will make us perfect. And you might uh, check this out as I continue to unpack this a little bit. And I want to talk about this in uh, two ways. There's a personal level, and this is the sense of uh, perfection where we are striving for flawlessness, setting excessively high performance standards, accompanied by overly critical self-evaluations and concerns regarding others' opinions. Now, I know none of us have ever experienced this in this room, right? This is the personal level. There's also a collective level. And this is where an ideal or a norm is either consciously or unconsciously held up as the most correct, the most beautiful, the most deserving or the most worthy. So many of you know that here at Common Ground, uh, there's been a lot of work around anti-racism. And this is an area where this collective starts to show up, where we can have what is a white racial frame operating consciously or unconsciously that then sets up a certain norm or standard through which everything is filtered. It creates a centrality or a supremacy which is harmful to all. So I also want to name this collective domain. And it's not that it's exclusive to racism. It applies to any of the isms or phobias. Anything that sets up a norm or a standard by which everything is measured. The effect of this is to divide. It's to set up a sense of those that belong and those that don't, those that are other or different. And we need look no further than our current political discourse to see this. It's very immediate. It's very present. So I want to name this at the outset, the power of this force, this power of kind of idealism or perfectionism. And it is a power, powerful force, both both individually and collectively. And one of the um, 
places that we can actually see this. I'm turning around because if you look at statues, statues, they're wonderful. I mean, they're inspiring. They can bring up a sense of faith and confidence. But they also can subtly contain ideas of perfection or idealism that I need to be seated in a perfect full lotus position holding a particular mudra or hand gesture with a particular serene face and that is when I'm practicing. Outside of that, I'm not really practicing. So contained within it can be a seed of perfection or idealism. And what happens is that then an idea or a view gets transmitted. It's almost like a virus. Like once it enters, it starts to replicate. And this idea or this view is that there's something we need to do. There's something that we have to gain. Or maybe there's something we have to get rid of in order to be perfect. Or something that has to be achieved only after a long, arduous journey. And it comes also again with this collective conditioning of doing, which we are all swimming in. We are conditioned to do. Being, well, we're still figuring that one out. We're still practicing. How do you actually be without needing to do something, without holding an agenda or a view about how something is supposed to be. And again, I can offer very uh, practical real-life examples. How many, just you don't have to raise your hands because I imagine all of us would raise our hands, but how many of you know somebody who, when you talk to them, they say, I'm so busy. I'm just busy, busy, busy. My life is completely overscheduled and I'm just so busy what's implicit or what's part of that statement is that the doing is defining that person's state of being. So that if you take away the busyness, if you say, well, what if you weren't busy, who are you? It's a very interesting question. For many of us, if we remove the doing aspect, it can feel vulnerable. It can feel almost like we're exposed or there's underlying anxiety that can show up. And this is because we're so conditioned on the doing side that we fail to miss the being, which is so much deeper and holds so much more capacity. So that our culture, the doing defines the being, right? This is the equation, the doing defines the being. But what if we flip that equation around and say how we are informs what we do. That's what this practice is pointing at again and again and again. How you are in any given moment, your being state informs what you do and how you do it. And it means that you have choice, that you're not wrapped up in a view. And just as we chanted actually earlier this morning, by not holding to fixed views, This is what's being pointed at directly. And actually I have, um, I could demonstrate this a little bit. So it's sometimes helpful to have visuals. So if I think about this as, this is a resting state. 
it doesn't take a lot of energy for me to hold the striker in this position because it's actually aligned with gravity and I can hold it fairly easily. Now, if I put energy into this system and I say that there's something I need to do, yeah, notice that this takes more energy and that also when I let go, it swings back in the opposite direction so that when I try to do something, there's a swing in the opposite direction, and this opposite direction is frustration. So when we set up that there's something that I need to achieve and do, if we fail to achieve that, then we swing into the opposite area, which is frustration, sense of hopelessness, of, of even resigning uh, to our fate. And this can happen in practice again and again. And there can be this idea that somehow if there's something painful or difficult, that you failed, that something's going wrong. And we can see this in practice again, where I should be on my breath and my body, but actually what's coming up is a difficult memory or a difficult emotion or uh, some difficult belief that I'm actually touching. And I can feel the ouch of this belief, the self-belief or this belief of another person. But that is the practice in that moment is to let go of some ideal of, well, this is how it should be, and to come back to how it is. There's a quote that I pulled. This comes from um, a book called Psychoanalysis and Buddhism. So this is kind of Western, Eastern coming together. And here's the quote. I liked this because it related so much. The enlightenment ideal becomes a version of the grandiose self the achievement of a purified state of complete self-sufficiency and personal purity from which all badness has been removed, which will be admired by others and will be invulnerable to further injury or disappointment. Perfection unconsciously comes to mean freedom from symptoms so oneself will be superior to everyone else's. The object of their admiration, if not envy. Then there was, later on in this chapter, an exchange between a Zen teacher and a student, which got to the the real essence, the heart of it. And this was it. So the question from the student was, but doesn't enlightenment clear away imperfections and personality flaws? The answer, no, it shows them up. We start to see them. But we see them with a real honesty, a real tenderness, a real open-heartedness. So how do we start to work with this um, perfectionist tendency that can show up? Well, what I like to do with my students is I like to have them take a vow of imperfection. And so I actually, if you'd like, I will uh, offer that to you now. So I used to be a practicing attorney, so I had to take an oath. So if you would raise your right hand... And repeat after me, I will swear you in for the vow of imperfection. This is totally optional, as, see, as, you, as you see fit, as they say. So here's the vow. Repeat after me. I, I state your name, Alex Haley, <laughs> vow to be an imperfect meditator. I will do my best to practice mindfulness, which means... I will try to the best of my ability and forgive myself 
when I am less than perfectly mindful. I will remember to smile and remind myself that starting again in this moment without self-judgment is a radical act of kindness. Thank you. You've all taken the vow of imperfection. So this is really important because notice that there is some laughter in the room, right? It's as though there is a little bit of lightness. We have a little bit more space, a little bit more capacity to hold, to meet whatever is arising. And so this vow in a very direct way is a reminder that being present with a kind heart is the practice. It's not something other than that. That's it. Being present with a kind heart moment to moment is the practice. So that is perfection. And when we start to move away, just as we did a little bit by taking on this vow of imperfection, we then move into the space of possibility. So this is where we notice that the river of feelings and thoughts and sensations and experiences, which we all have, this river, this flow, that we get swept away at times. But then in a moment, we can drop back into our body or we can drop into hearing the call of a bird or feeling the settledness of a room or a moment of a connection with uh, another human being or perhaps a pet uh, or another animal friend that we encounter or even just the land itself. And that when we do that, that's a fundamental reorientation. It's actually connecting with a sense of aliveness, possibility, well-being, okayness. This is what I was pointing at in the guided meditation. So there's a part of this that is starting here. It's always here, which is why there's so much emphasis in all of these teachings about the present moment. The Buddha again and again was saying, here, 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 not somewhere else, here. So I have a short poem. This is called Lost by Dave Wagner. Stand still. The trees ahead and bushes behind you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger. Must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes, listen. It answers, I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So can you sense that shift from the doing into the being? And when we do this, we notice... What is here now? So when you drop in the question right now, what is here now? Notice that that connects you immediately to your own aliveness, to your own awareness, to your own presence, to your own capacity. 
it also then shifts us into what is available or what's possible in any given moment. Because when we don't notice what is here, then we get pulled into the streams, the flow of thoughts, the flow of emotions. We create narratives, stories, beliefs, views. It's endless, right? We know this. We get swept away. And in the Buddhist teachings, there is a very direct statement about this. The Buddha talked about cultivating um, or practicing the four right efforts. And two of the right efforts were cultivating the arising of skillful states of heart and mind that haven't yet arisen. So how do we actually cultivate or set the conditions in place for the arising of these skillful states of mind and heart that haven't yet arisen but are there? We just have to set the conditions in place for them to arise and be recognized. And then once they've arisen, how do we maintain these states? nourish them, allow them to be there longer and longer. And for me, the modern word for this is well-being. This is really the side that's talking about well-being. The other two right efforts, I would say, are really looking at stress and suffering. That would be the modern uh, words for the other ones. And I brought in a little bit of um, modern research, the science side, How many of you know uh, Dr. Barbara Fredrickson does work on positivity? So a few. So there's Dr. Barbara Fredrickson is a researcher at uh, University of North Carolina who looks at the power of positive mind states or positive emotions. And she came up with what's called the broaden and build theory. And what I love about this is that it goes back, at least in my reading, of what was already there in so many of these early discourses on practice that we're hearing from the Buddha. And this is the theory on broaden and build. When you notice a positive state, it broadens your awareness. It makes it wider. From this wider perspective, new thoughts, activities, and relationships become available. From these new thoughts, these new activities, these new relationships, there's enhanced health, fulfillment, purpose, and meaning. All of this is possibility. That's the terrain that we're in. We're shifting from habits that are not so helpful into what is possible, what is working, what's here. I'm alive, I'm breathing. I can sense the environment. That's all working, but we almost always miss the fact that that's working, that that's actually going right, that As long as we're breathing, as John Kabat-Zinn likes to say, there's more right with you than wrong with you, right? And so some of these qualities, which show up also in the discourses, interest, hope, amusement, right? There was a little bit of laughter earlier when we were taking the vow of imperfection. Inspiration, awe, joy, gratitude. All of these are positive states of heart and mind that open our awareness and give us access to new thoughts, new relationships, new states of being in the world. Ajahn Sachito, wonderful practitioner, phrases it this way. He likes to talk about 
noticing that sense of embodied presence that is onward leading. He emphasizes a lot this somatic component about noticing moments of well-being in the body itself. Dr. Ellen Langer, another researcher, talks about it again in terms of possibility. This is one of my favorite quotes. She says, much of my own research is designed to test possibilities, not to find what is descriptively true. If I can make one dog yodel, then we can say that yodeling is possible for dogs. (laughs) Notice that this is a very different view, right? We're seeing what is possible in a moment. And so from a practice perspective, we can actually practice this moment to moment. The very first thing that's extremely powerful is just being mindful. When we take ourselves off of autopilot, we immediately change the relationship and we notice what is here, what is possible, just by being mindful. The other thing is that we can start to create a new habit where we notice what we're grateful for. Or if we're struggling in a moment, we can say, I'm really struggling with fill in the blank and I'm alive. Notice the and I'm alive creates a new orientation. It's not that you're denying the difficulty of the moment. You're just also adding in this other element that helps to support a new perspective. We can also reflect particularly in difficult relationships. We can get very caught in the difficult relationship. But if we reflect for a moment that this is another human being trying to do the best they know how, given the conditions that they're in, that can shift the relationship in a moment. And if we reflect, this is where we can use the skillful use of thought, we can drop in what is okay now, what is possible now. What might a friend or a loved one have to add about the situation? Or if I was completely supported by my community, what might they say? What might they encourage me to do? So this is all ways that we can practice this possibility. So let me say a few words now about patience because we're moving from this fixed idea, this view, to shifting into the reality of what's happening in any given moment, no longer on autopilot, noticing what is here in this moment, what is possible, what's available, and what is it in this moment that is supporting well-being, that is supporting this sense of okayness, of kindness. I have a um, story uh, that actually involves um, myself and my mom and my stepdad, so they're both here. Hopefully they'll enjoy this story as well. I know it piqued their interest. They just looked up at me the minute I said that. (laughs) So the story is, I was actually coming back from Asia, and I was in my uh, 20s. I was in my mid to 20s, and I was coming back, and as uh, most kids that didn't I didn't have a place to live when I was coming back, so I immediately said, well, I need to move back in with my parents. That's what I do. So I moved back in, and I had been practicing for a while at this point. And um, my mom's also a practitioner, so she had been practicing for a while. And my stepdad's a practitioner, but in a very different way. He's very keen and aware to dynamics that are happening. And so what happened is I moved back in, and I moved back into my old room, and I was there for a while. And at the beginning, I was... I was very, um, still very independent. I was able to you know, make my own food, to do my laundry, 
clean up after myself. But as time went on, there was maybe a few more dirty piles, right? Like there was a few dirty, extra dirty clothes that I just kind of left next to the washing machine. Or I didn't always cook my own meals. I kind of came in the kitchen and said, oh, hey, that smells really good. What's, you know, is there, are you cooking something? Or I would leave things around and just with the expectation that somebody would pick them up. Somebody would clean them up. So this was starting to happen. I didn't notice it. And I think for the most part, my mom didn't notice it. But my stepdad noticed this (laughs) dynamic very quickly. He was very keen to this. So what happened was at a certain point, I said, you know, if I'm going to be here, I want to change my room. This is my old room. So let's go out and get some new furniture. So my mom and I went out to uh, Ikea to try to find some furniture that, you know, something that was reasonable, wasn't uh, very expensive, but that would just allow me to settle in. And so we started going through Ikea, and I said, what about this? No, no. And then she said, what about that? And I said, no, no. And we went back and forth, and we were starting to get, it was getting a little bit more tense as we were going back and forth about what was the right fit. And then finally, we ended up in a section of the store and said, well, what about this? Fine, yes, that looks great. And at that moment, we looked up, and we were in the teenager section. (laughs) And there was a moment of recognition where I looked at my mom, and she looked at me. And I don't remember which one of us said first, but one of us said, it might be good if you got your own place. I think it was my mom. (laughs) And I said, "I, I think you're probably right. It might be good. So this is where, again, we have the patience to recognize that certain patterns run deep. And so that we stay, we're in it for the long haul, and that we are aware or we're noticing, and so we catch it. We may not catch it right away, as my stepdad did. He was able to catch it right away. But my mom and I, it took us a little longer, even though we're both practitioners. But eventually you catch it. And this is the wisdom of patience. Everything has its own rhythm. Everything has its own time. And within Buddhism, the word kanti is the word for patience. And it's translated sometimes as acceptance, forgiveness, tolerance, patience. And it means that with all of these eight worldly winds, praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pain and pleasure, we don't get so caught up in them. We're less reactive. And that we're patient, that we trust that there's a real kind-heartedness and gentleness And there's a quote where the Buddha talks about this understanding, this growth of wisdom and compassion. And it's said this way, just as the ocean has a gradual shelf, a gradual slope, a gradual inclination with a sharp drop-off, only after a long stretch, in the same way, this Dhamma and Vinya, which is the discipline, has a gradual training, a gradual performance, a gradual progression. I like to sometimes use the metaphor of the bud of a flower. If you were to notice a bud of a flower and start to peel the petals of the flower off because you wanted it to open before it was ready to open, you're going to kill the flower, right? Instead, with a real gentleness, you hold the conditions. You make sure that all of the... There's enough sunlight, there's soil, there's water, there's care, there's tending to the plant, that eventually it opens in its own time. This is patience. This is the wisdom of patience. And many of you know um, the poem, St. Francis and the Sow. And there's, this is, for me, one of the best um, 
reflections on this. And I'll read you just an excerpt from this poem. It says, The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower, for everything flowers from within, of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within, of self-blessing. So this is not a fixed state. Notice the difference in the perfection or the idealism or the goal. It's as though there's some fixed destination that once you arrive, everything is done. You're invulnerable to any kind of um, imperfection. And you'll be at the admiration of others because you've arrived at this fixed state. But what this is pointing to, the wisdom of patience, is dynamic. It's a process, and that you are continually in the process. And it's the willingness to be honest, to be kind, to be open and available that is the manifestation of understanding. It is wisdom lived, not the idea of wisdom. It's compassion lived, not the idea of compassion. But it's moment to moment. Suzuki Roshi used to say that there are no enlightened people. There's only enlightened activity. In a moment, are you open? Are you kind? Are you patient? I'd like to end with just a short um, excerpt from, uh, I I love the title of this book. It's Who Ordered This Truckload of Dung (laughs) by Ajahn Brahm. And out of one of these, uh, he has these different stories. You know, it's as though this truck comes up and just dumps a bunch of fertilizer right in your front of your front door. And it's sort of like, what do I do with this? And so one of the stories in this book is called Opening the Door of Our Heart. And this is what I'd like to end with. Oh, actually, maybe one more short thing from Suzuki Roshi. So I'll read this and then Suzuki Roshi. So this is called Opening the Door of Our Heart. Why is it in our culture that we are always sacrificing ourselves for others And this is held up to be good. Why is it that we are more demanding, more critical, and more punishing of ourselves than of anyone else? It is for one and the same reason. We have not yet learned how to love ourselves. If you find it difficult to say to another, the door of my heart is open to you, whatever you do, then that difficulty is trifling compared with the difficulty you will face in saying it to yourself. Me, the one I've been so close to for as long as I can remember myself. The door of my heart is open to me as well. To all of me, no matter what I have done, come in. That's what I mean by loving ourselves. It's called forgiveness. It is stepping free from the prison of guilt. It is being at peace with oneself. And if you do find the courage to say those words to yourself honestly in the privacy of your inner world, then you will rise up to meet sublime love. One day, we all have to say to ourselves those words or one similar with honesty, without playing games. When we do, it is as if a part of ourselves that had been rejected, living outside in the cold for so long, has now come home. 
we feel unified, whole, and free to be happy. Only when we love ourselves in such a way can we know what it means to truly love another. No more and no less. And this is the last part that he says. And please remember, you do not have to be perfect without fault to give yourself such love. If you wait for perfection, it never arrives. We must open the door of our heart to ourselves. Whatever we have done, once inside, then we are perfect. Inside your own heart. Suzuki Roshi, in a much more direct way, said it this way. Each of you is perfect the way you are. And you could use a little improvement. (laughs) So this is the progression from perfection to possibility to patience. So when we relax the grip of perfection, of the view, of the ideal, of some state that is invulnerable to any sort of difficulty, then we get to experience greater possibility through the relaxing of that view, of that idea. And it's from that relaxing of that view and noticing what's possible that we start to develop the trust, the confidence, the forgiveness, and most of all, the patience that this is a process of becoming more wise and compassionate, one moment at a time. So let's sit for just a few moments and see if you can connect with your own imperfect, perfect being. The door of your heart is open to yourself. Thank you for your kind attention. Please take what's useful and leave the rest. It was simply offered as a reflection. So I'd like to open up for, we'll have time for a few questions, and then when the kids come in, uh, that'll be the cue to let them teach us. (laughs) Yes. So um, my name is John, and the question is, um, it's not too hard to, open the door of my heart to myself, mm. it's a little harder to walk through it. Yes. So um, I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. Yes. So the uh, comment uh, was that it's not hard to open the door. It's more difficult to walk through the door. And my own experience is similar, that there are, it is a process of being able to, first of all, open the heart, And the next step is then to actually be able to step into your own heart. And it may be, at least in my own experience, that you put a toe in and then the toe comes out. And then you see how that was. And then the next moment, perhaps you put half of your foot through the threshold and then come back. 
but it's finding any small amount and not to underestimate the fact that the door is open. Just knowing that the door is open is already a powerful shift. Yeah. And it'll be different for every single one of us. So without being able to speak directly to your experience, it's finding the path of least resistance into your own heart in whatever way allows you to put that toe in the door. Thank you. Uh, yes, question in the front. Can you pass the microphone towards the uh, yep towards the front. When you were talking about the statue, um, it reminded me of an awareness I received when I was doing a kind of a consciousness um, expanding experience where they. Uh, they they busted me for kind of looking like that, you know, having the having the bob, having the right bob, having the right, like looking spiritual, mm. right? And mm-hmm. uh, they were like, no, nope, it's not that. <laughs> so I think that that's just, um, you know, when we're new in our practice, we try to take on the characteristics of our teachers, yeah, but that's not what it is. Yes, thank you. It's a very wise reflection. And also that, you know, to hold even that with some lightness, because in the beginning there can be some value in, um, if we take it on temporarily, it's not authentically us, and yet it's better than taking on something else, right? So if we're taking on that particular, well, there's many things we could take on. Yes, yes, yeah. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.